0: A question has been haunting me recently. Uh, Lots of questions have been haunting me recently, I suppose, but this one in particular, it began a couple of weeks ago, I suppose, I began to go through my books in my library to give some away and to practice the simplicity and uh, my books, my precious books, some of which I've had for a long, long time. Man, that stung. I don't know if you've tried to practice simplicity in this season by giving something away, but the thought struck me that more and more books is honestly, it's just kind of a, a penny perspective, right? And this haunting question, it ups the ante. It, this question that has been haunting me also uh, came to mind a little while ago. My, uh, my parents asked what I'd like for my upcoming birthday, you know, and the questions always go like this, well, what do you want or even what do you need uh, what do I need? Uh, not much, really. What do I want? That's a different question. Another sort of penny perspective of life. More and more. Or this haunting question has come up again when uh, Adam Lanter sent me some uh, startling statistics about Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. Um, the, one of them goes like this. If, if Jeff Bezos gave all of the Amazon employees all 876,000 of them, nearly a million people, if he gave them a Christmas bonus, let's say, of $105,000 for each and every one, then he would have at the end of that the same amount of money he started with at the beginning of this pandemic. Can you believe that? He'd be $92 billion shorter than what he was then, but he'd still be pretty well off. And just to kind of fathom the the length and the the amount of those numbers, uh, think about it this way, that if um, you worked every single day and you made $5,000 a day, I mean, that's a a huge amount. If you've worked for $5,000 a day every day since Columbus sailed the ocean blue, you know, in 1492 until today, if you worked every day $5,000 a day, you still would not make a billion dollars. 964 or 5 million, something like that. And you would make less in that time frame than Jeff Bezos makes in one week. The daydreamer part of me longs to be in that situation. But then again, that's just another penny perspective. The, the haunting question. It's more of a quarter question, honestly. And this morning I think it's worth our time to consider it. Today we're continuing in our sermon series on simplicity that we've called less, where we're talking about this cultural voice that shouts at us that more and more and more is the way of life. But God's voice continues to whisper to us that more does not lead to the abundant life that we often imagine. And really, social sciences and even our own experiences probably dictate that or determine that same thought as well. In reality, for us, contentment in a life with Jesus, gratitude, with God a less attitude that's where life is found and that can create space for God's kingdom life in the midst of so many other things so much more stuff so much more so today I think one quarter question hopefully will strip away all these kind of penny perspectives that we have on our lives and hopefully help us as we think about our own money and possessions in this season Now, the question that I've been haunted by rises out of a story Jesus told in the book of Luke, chapter 12. If you have a Bible there with you, you want to open up to Luke 12. Uh, We've been in this chapter together throughout this series. Uh, Jesus has been teaching a massive crowd of people. People are sort of uh, jostling one another, not socially distanced in the ancient world. And In the midst of that crowd, one of a, a, a large number of people shouts out and asks Jesus about a family inheritance dispute. And Jesus sort of sidesteps that question and offers this wisdom instead in verse 15. uh, Wisdom that we need, especially in our day and age. He says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And because I think of the radical nature of that, that, that which flies in the face of all of our sort of penny perspectives, I think that very proverbial wisdom is something that we need a story to illustrate. So Jesus offers a story. To change our sort of currency confusion. And here's the story Luke chapter 12, verse 16. It says, And Jesus told them this parable The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Now, now first of all, this guy, this character captures my attention. First of all, he's loaded. Uh, The Greek term for ground here can refer to more than just a single farm. It can refer, in fact, to a whole region or to the landscape. Uh, This man appears to have extensive land holdings. And that's not unheard of in the days of Jesus. Uh, Archaeologists have uncovered large grain silos uh, in and around uh, the city of Sepphoris, which is an ancient kind of Hellenized Jewish city in Galilee, not far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And so wealthy landowners would amass great portions of land around them. They would hire uh, peasant farmers to tend it for them. Oftentimes they would live far away, these wealthy landowners, and they were the envy of the everyday folks. This guy is rich. And he's also in the story, I notice, he's unnamed. Is a certain rich man. Now, this is a story, so no name is required. Although Jesus will insert a a name in a story in Luke's gospel, Luke 16, about the rich man and Lazarus. But this man gets no name. He could be anyone. He could be you or me. Now, I know what you're thinking. No, not me. I'm not rich. I'm not the 1%. I'm not living on easy street. We're everyday folks. And, and sure, sure, I totally get that 100%. Although it's funny to me that 70% of Americans, 70% claim that they are a part of the middle class. I don't think the math on that works out quite like we hope. But of course, our penny perspective depends on to whom we're comparing the size of our bowl, of course. If we're comparing the number of things that we have, the pennies we have, to Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, we're destitute, or maybe other people that you know in your life, doctors, lawyers, engineers, or or highly successful business people. Yeah, of course, we don't have much, but maybe we need to think this way. If you have $4,210 to your name, That puts you in the wealthiest 50% in the world. You're top 50%. Or if you have a car, you're in an elite class. Only 8% of people in the world have a car. You're top 8% of the wealthiest people. Or if you're able to flush a toilet where you live, your running water puts you in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the whole world. Top 5%. Or, if your household has an annual income, a total household income of $63,000, that places you in the top 0.17% of the world's richest people, according to the global rich list. Top 1%. This certain rich man might just be you or me. And he's doing pretty well for himself, Jesus says his land holdings yielded an abundant harvest. Luke uses a unique Greek term to describe his success. Euphoreo is the word to, to uh, have an abundant crop or something. But it's where we get our word uh, euphoric. This man's land is producing and he is feeling fine. But the more in his life is complicating thing. He thought to himself, verse 17, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. We call those good problems. We may call those first world problems, but he's going through this sort of mental filibuster. How am I going to do this? What should I do? Should I do this? Should I do this? There's some stress he's experiencing, but I want you to notice in the story, there's nothing sinister here. There's nothing immoral. He's come about his wealth. Honestly, now he's got to figure out what to do with it, and yet Here's where his penny perspective starts to make some noise. His outlook turns inward. As one commentator, B.B. Scott, notes, the rich man takes over the story from the narrator at this point. It's almost like he projects himself in as the, the leader of the story, the main character. He's calling all the shots. What shall I do? Now, that's not the haunting question that I've experienced here recently. Although I'm guessing that's the question that many of us have when it comes to our own penny perspectives. What shall I do? How often do you find yourself asking that when it comes to the possessions in your care? What shall I do? In fact, just listen to the inner dialogue this man has about the wealth in his life with a little emphasis from me here in Luke 12, starting in verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I Have no place to store my crops. And then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Do you hear it in the story? Personal pronouns portray his penny perspectives. And all of a sudden, his wealth has thrust him in the main character of his own story and all the rest of the cast gets shoved off into the shadows. There's no mention at all of his family, of his workers, of his community. He wants all the rights of his wealth, none of the responsibilities. He wants a bowl filled with more and more and more while ignoring the empty bowls of people all around him. Do you know who this guy is in the story? He's the brother who yelled out to Jesus in the crowd. He wanted more to the exclusion of his brother when it came to the inheritance. He had let greed slip in. He believed that life consisted in an abundance of possessions. Isn't that this man's philosophy in verse 19? It makes up just four little words in Greek, four little penny perspective ideas. In English, it's a few more words, but the same idea. Take life easy. Eat. Drink, be merry. Now, the trouble I have with this story is as I'm hearing it from Jesus, it's normal. It sounds so normal to me. It's it's a guy who's just building his investment portfolio, he's managing his wealth for an early retirement, he's winning. If I met this guy, I'd probably say, kudos to you, wonderful job, well done. Yeah, retire, take life easy, sleep in, buy that sports car you've always wanted, buy a winter home in Florida, you've done well. Except I'm afraid that my applause also just adds to all the penny perspectives we have. It's a problem we must confront. It's what I would call a self-centered money mentality. A self-centered Money mentality It's a, a penny perspective when we have a larger quarter question that we have to determine. The, the question, though, I wonder is, have we found ourselves living into that mentality? No matter how much we own, have our thoughts about it all turned inward? Have we begun to say to ourselves, this is my bowl, and these are my pennies, and this is my stuff, and if I fill up my bowl and I have more and more, then I'll have plenty, and I'll be able to do all I want and go where I want and do what I want. And largely, that's what we do. Do you know, on average, every day, you and I, the average American, spends about $100 on non-essential items. $100 every day, just because we can. Or history tells us that we have just spent, as a nation, $9 billion on Halloween costumes and Halloween candy. $9 billion. That is a lot of Kit Kats. Or, history tells us that every year, uh, in Christmas in front of us, we'll spend about $450 billion on Christmas. I wonder, have personal pronouns dominated our inner dialogue? Has the, your bowl of pennies propelled you to be the main character in your life, and you've pushed others into the shadows of your soul? Pulse all this in the church. We saw this mentality in the early church. And so he offered six realities of, of wealth and possessions and money and in First Timothy chapter six. I want to just run through those with you this morning. Uh, reality number one, he says in First Timothy six, six, is but godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you believe that? That peace with less and with Christ outweighs selfish more. Or reality number two: for we brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out of it. You can't take it with you. We've heard that time and again. Or reality number three but if you have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Our needs being met, that's enough. Do you believe that? A fourth reality those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This bowl can be dangerous and a threat to your very soul, Paul says. Number five, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This can embed in your soul and become a poison to your life. And finally, number six, he says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. And pierce themselves with many griefs. This bowl can shoo you away from a life with Christ. A certain rich man jumped into his own bowl. Have you done the same? It can be comfy. But, back to our story, Luke chapter 12. But, God said to this man, You fool. Aphron is the word in Greek fool it's in the old testament a fool was someone who who didn't live life with God who didn't live in God's wisdom it's the same label Jesus just plastered on the Pharisees in Luke eleven forty 40 about their hypocrisy he said they cleaned the outside of the dish but inside they were full of greed he said be generous to the poor instead God said you fool This very night your life will be demanded from you and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This man let his wealth turn him into the main character of his own story and then God decided to take over the role again. This life of ease out in front of him was taken away by the one truly in charge. Wow, this is a tough story. Now, This crushing story, listen, it does not condemn careful, wise planning or financial strategies or wealth per se. But what Jesus goes after very harshly in this story is the selfish use of the wealth we have at our disposal. That's just a penny perspective. And it's just too small. It fails to recognize a couple of things. First of all, it fails to recognize that God is the main character in our stories. As James would put it, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God gives us wealth. It comes down from him. Do you believe that? In fact, in the story Jesus told, did you notice who is responsible for the man's wealth? Verse 16. Jesus says, the ground yielded. It doesn't say the man earned. No, God gave wealth through his good creation. And honestly, that's how you get it too, you know? Everything we have is a gift provided to us by this glorious God. Don't forget, selfishness can be a temptation as slippery as a wet penny. Even 3,000 years ago, Moses saw this in the people of God, and he made this comment to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. This penny perspective forgets that God is the main character, but this penny perspective also forgets that others have contributed to our success this man in the story his land holdings were run by an army of real people their sweat their sacrifice their long days helped produce this harvest in his life and yet when harvest time came all he could think about was how it was his it's all mine and yet God's children helped produce the benefit of his success and that's true for you and for me there's no self-made man or woman in our lives the truth is your bowl has been filled by people around you and by people before you and, and so many blessings have been added to your life because of the community around you in fact i need to be honest with you about this bowl this is not even my bowl i didn't make it i didn't buy it i didn't earn it phil warner gave it to me and these pennies they're not my pennies either my family has a jar in our house that we collect all the spare change from all different kinds of purchases. These pennies belong to my wife and my kids and our and whole family. Everything I have is a gift. And everything you have is a gift. I'm constantly aware as a pastor that the salary afforded to me is because of the generosity and gifts of God's people. But of course, the more we dig into everybody's role in wealth, we begin to see that as well. So many of us, so many of you perhaps, with jobs in the state, uh, money supplied by taxes that I pay and you pay and we pay, or businesses where I purchase and you purchase and we purchase, and and all I'm trying to make the point is, is that we're all more interconnected perhaps than we dare to believe. So why in the world would we solely say this bowl is mine and exclude everyone else? That's just another kind of penny perspective. But God, God in the story, I think, makes a pretty big demand, what I'll call a dollar demand, and I think it's called an open-handed money mandate. That really, our penny perspectives need to crash into this haunting question. Paul, again, he saw this in the church, and not only did he lay out these realities of money and possessions in 1 Timothy 6, he also laid out six commands there to help the church navigate these penny perspectives. And here they are, 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 17. Number one, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Don't regard yourself as better because you may have more. Number two, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. This bowl can't make you safe or secure or content, and it can be taken from you at any time. As we've seen this year through stock market or crashes or job losses or pandemic number three but to put their hope in god who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment deeply enjoy the things of god in your life that's his command verse four command them to do good to be rich in good deeds leverage your possessions leverage your privileges for the good of other people and five to be generous and willing to share to keep an open hand not to clutch on to everything that we have with closed fists So that in six, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So we invest in others today so that our eternal reward will be waiting. This is what we've been calling over the length of this series, the practice of simplicity. And let me offer maybe my two cents on how we can practice this together. Very simple way. One is to limit how much we own, and a second is to practice generosity. We can limit how much we own, self-limit. We can limit our budget. We can limit how much we'll have in our wardrobe. We can limit how many books we'll have in our library. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the famed preacher, once put it this way. He said, there are two ways to get enough. You can accumulate more and more, or you can desire less. Maybe we should spend less time asking ourselves, how can I get more? And start asking ourselves, how can I live with less? Not because we disdain pleasure, but because we desire peace. A clinical psychologist named Amelia Thatcher found in a study uh, that the greater clutter in your house, the more stuff you have in your house, the less quality sleep you get in your home. Now think about that. Again, it's not because we should own nothing, but maybe there can be peace with owning less. Or my friend Isaiah Crowell passed this quote from Wendell Berry along to me, uh, which I think is uh, maybe telling of our age. Uh, Wendell wrote, Don't own so much clutter that you will be relieved to see your house catch fire. Limit how much you own. Here's a challenge for you this week. Maybe you have some time. You can go into one space in your house, maybe one uh, room or one place in your apartment, and just take everything there and put it into one of five piles. Maybe a a giveaway pile. You just don't use it anymore. Somebody else could use it. Uh, A second sell pile, you know, maybe it's valuable to others. Or third, maybe just a throwaway pile or recycle pile. Give it away um, because you just, you don't need it. It's not good for anybody. Or a fourth pile, you could add what I call a a wait pile. You know, you you think, "Ah, I don't really use it, but maybe I'll need it or, or maybe I'll need it down the road. Just put it away. Maybe three months, six months. See if you need it. See if you come back to it or if you don't. If you do need it, great, keep it. If you don't, bless somebody else with it. And then, of course, the fifth pile is the the keep pile. Anything that's good or beautiful or useful to you, especially in your walk with Christ, keep it. I think you'll find value in living a life of simplicity with less. So limit what you own. And then the second side of that is to practice generosity. Giving is God's vaccine for the virus of greed. It just is give. Now that's new for you. If you've not done that before, start small. Start where you are, not where you think you should be. There's no shame or pressure bound up into this. Maybe for you, you think, well, how can I give anything? I'm spending it all. Well, maybe cut back some of your spending. Maybe you're eating out budget or maybe you cancel a a Disney Plus subscription and you start to generate that money and give it, to, give it away to somebody in need, just listen to the Spirit in your life. So here's a little exercise for you this week, a challenge. Give. Give to a person or to a cause you care about. But especially, I think as the New Testament would remind us, give special attention in your giving to the poor and to the church. That's what we're hoping to model together in this Everyday Hope Project that we have this time of year, where we model generosity together to the the community through our church family. We want to be an open-handed kind of people. So maybe try that this week and watch what happens in your heart. I think you'll find more joy in meeting other people's needs than filling up your bowl more and more. Well, Jesus tells a powerful story about a man's penny perspective and god's dollar demand in the midst of it but what is that haunting question that that quarter question that every time i think about my own bowl in my own life this question seems to pop up for me it's the way jesus finished his story did you hear it in verse 20 Uh, quite literally the, the greek phrase would read this way who then will get what you have prepared i don't like that word prepared Prepared sounds like something being made ready for somebody else. Prepared. Notice God didn't say, who will get what you have earned, or who will get what you have stored, or what you have managed, or even what you have managed well. He says, who will get what you have prepared? It's almost as if somebody else is going to get all my stuff. It's almost as if I won't get to keep all of my stuff. It's almost as if I'm only taking care of it for a short time. God's deeply troubling conclusion leads to my haunting quarter question. I'm just going to give it to you this morning. Here it is. Who is your more being prepared for? Let that settle in among all your pennies this week. Let's pray together. Father, you've richly blessed us not least of which in Jesus Christ, our salvation, our forgiveness, everything that we need is found in him. And God, you bless us with wealth. You bless us with people in our lives to help. You bless us with a community. Help us now to be an open-handed people. Help us to be a people who are rich towards you, Father, and rich towards those in our lives. Help us to shed these penny perspectives, God, that seek to clog us up and all the cultural voices and all their loudness this time of year. Help us, Father, to be your image bearers and to be generous. In Jesus' name, amen.